Well, if you have your place, go ahead and stand with me, and we will look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1 here. 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 1. Paul said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he, he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ May rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Tonight, we're going to look at and talk about a small part, I wouldn't say it's all of um, the promise of God's grace, but we're going to look at a small part of the promise of God's grace tonight. So pray with me. And we'll get started this evening. Father, I thank you for the time, as always, to be together as a church family. Um, It's an encouragement and a blessing and a help. And I thank you for the day and the evening already. I just pray for this brief time that we're going to look at your word uh, once more today, Lord. Just speak to our hearts. Use this promise to um, comfort us, Lord. I think we all know it, um, but it helps to be reminded sometimes of these things that we can rest in, Lord. And I thank you for your word. Please help us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever found yourself in a position of having to defend your credibility or authority? Um, I think we could all probably identify with being in that position. It is not a fun place to be in. When I was in college, just before, um, just before our midterm exam in my first semester Greek class, my professor made an announcement. He had discovered that some of the students had been cheating. And he announces this right before we're about to take a test. We've all been cramming. He told us to put our note cards away, and it's like, let's go. And he drops this bomb. Some of the students have been cheating. Now, I still to this day don't know how he discovered the cheating. There was an answer key to some of the translation exercises we'd been asked to do, there was an answer key that could be accessed online. And some of the students found this and were using this. They would use the answer key and change their translations just enough 
that it sounded like it was their own, but it really was not. And so my guess is he noticed that a quiz and exam grades were not matching their impeccable translation work, and so um, suspected that something was going on. So he made it clear that there had been cheating, and he made it clear that he knew who had been cheating, and he made it clear that there would be consequences. All assignments that had been submitted dishonestly would receive a zero. And this meant for some students, it would not be possible to pass the course. And I wanna add, this course was not an elective, it was required for graduation, and so some of my peers actually just quit coming to class because they couldn't pass at this point. Um, so they would get a zero, which meant some would not pass the course. Additionally, all previously graded assignments would be re-evaluated for cheating. And finally, each student who had cheated could expect to receive a call slip in their mailboxes and they would be required to meet with the professor in his office if they wished to continue at the institution. So this was the announcement. And then he prayed <laughs> and we took our exam. And needless to say, it was um, a little dramatic and um, hard to focus after that. But not, not too long after that, I, I was in my room and I logged into my student account online to look at some of my grades. And I noticed one of my Greek translation assignments had a zero next to it. And in that moment, my heart, it went into my stomach and into my throat all at the same time. Like I was just overcome with this anxiety. My professor thinks I cheated. Um, that's, that's immediately what I thought when I saw this zero. And, and I was just, I was overwhelmed with this anxiety. I almost immediately reached out to my professor um, and tried to schedule a meeting with him, but he told me, that he was very busy and that it'd have to wait a couple days. And it felt like he was being punitive and it honestly made me kind of mad. Like, well, I'm like, what do you mean I had to wait a couple of days? So he pushed it out and I, I don't remember exactly how long it was between when I reached out to him and when I was able to meet with him. But during that time, I was miserable. And I was miserable for this reason. My integrity was being questioned. My credibility was being questioned. I, I had worked hard for the grades I had and, and that was being called in to question. Uh, my reputation was being called into question. And, and it, at the same time, there was this relational tension. I saw this man, my professor, around campus and he treated me just like he always did, but I thought behind the smile, he thought I was a cheater. And so there was this relational tension and so to make a very long story short, I did eventually meet with my professor and he informed me that the zero in the system was a clerical error. And I went, whoo, like I didn't have to defend anything. He, he assured me, he said, if I thought you cheated, I would have already set up a meeting. So um, he made that very clear. But all of that to say, being in the position of having your credibility, your sincerity and reputation challenged is not a fun place to be. That is not a fun place to be at all. But this was the position the Apostle Paul found himself in when he was writing the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul established the church at Corinth 
during his second missionary journey. And he had personally led many of these people to Christ. He had discipled them. He had led them in the truth. He worked to establish and ground the church. And he poured himself into these people as their pastor. He he deeply loved and, and cared for them. But sometime after his initial visit to Corinth, a number of opponents of the Apostle Paul infiltrated the church. And they called into question his apostleship. They called into question his authority. They called into question his love and care for the church. They called into question his sincerity and integrity. They, 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 they called him you know, a trickster. Someone, he was deceiving them. But most importantly, they called into question his gospel, which was very serious. So Paul would have been unaware of all this going on. You know, there was not social media back then. This wasn't on Facebook. And so, prior to his second visit to Corinth, Paul sent Timothy ahead to check in on the church. And Timothy found the place in turmoil. Like, the Corinthian church was a mess. And when Paul heard of this, he decided to return to the church immediately. Uh, But he quickly found he was not welcome. He actually described his visit as painful because of the church's open rebellion against him. And he decided it would be better to leave in humiliation than to, uh, to retaliate uh, on this second visit to the church. So he went to Ephesus, where he penned a very severe and tearful letter, warning of the judgment of God. And this letter was delivered by Titus and would have been written between first in 2 Corinthians, and it's lost to us. We don't have this document. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. Thankfully, when, when Paul reunited with Titus in Macedonia, um, Paul learned that most in Corinth had repented. However, there, were still a, there was still a small subset of people that were in rebellion against Paul. So in our book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is continuing to address this challenge to his authority as an apostle and this challenge to his apostolic ministry. So he's, he's both encouraging those who repented, saying, I am who I say I am. My gospel is true. And he's also giving those, those who were in rebellion against him one last chance because when he, when he comes, he's going to settle this. This is going to be fixed. And he's, he's going to come back to Corinth. So this is, this is all in anticipation of his third visit to the city. He's both trying to bolster the faith of the majority as well as give the rebellious minority another chance to repent. So in chapter 12, Paul is continuing to defend his apostleship by boasting in his credentials because, and so because the Corinthians forced his hand Paul will go on boasting. And and Paul makes it quite clear that this whole episode has been foolishness. It's been a waste of time and effort. It's forced Paul uh, to lower himself to the place of defending his own ministry against these people, which he, he shouldn't have had to do. He said in verse 11, I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me. In other words, you forced my hand. You've made me lower myself to this foolishness in order to defend myself. And this is why he says in verse 1, I must go on boasting, verse 1 of chapter 12, 
though there's nothing to be gained by it. It's not expedient for me. Um, this is a, this is, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I must go on boasting. And so Paul says, I've outlined these things up to this point, some of my credentials, and we come now to the topic of visions and dreams. Okay? Paul outlined an extraordinary experience he had and the revelation that was given, both of which were certainly grounds for boasting. He mentions this all hesitantly. He doesn't doesn't really want to go there. He's being forced to. And you see Paul's hesitance to boast in his own experiences by the way he refers to himself in the third person. He refers to himself as a man he knew about 14 years ago. So he doesn't say I. He says this man I knew about 14 years ago. This man was brought to the third heaven. This is not the realm of birds and clouds or the realm of the moon and stars. This is the realm of angels and the realm of God. He was brought up to this place. And in the third heaven, in paradise with God, Paul saw and heard unspeakable things. And you and I can only imagine what this experience must have been like and what he must have seen and heard. Now, this is all very odd. It's certainly odd that it happened. This is not normal. If if you've not figured this out, we don't usually get caught up to the third heaven. Uh, we, We don't know why God did this. We don't know what Paul saw or what he heard. It's only mentioned here in Scripture, and it's an extremely bizarre claim. And it's especially bizarre to us, who were not the least bit superstitious. It's bizarre that he would say this. But what's Paul's point in mentioning it? This happened because it's in God's Word, Paul said it happened. But what's his point in mentioning it? He is cautiously, almost timidly, trying to defend his authority in his ministry. And he admits he doesn't want to boast about these things. The Corinthians forced him to. They forced his hand. He's setting himself up as one of God's chosen apostles. And he's using this experience as one one of many defenses, as credentials, defending his resume as an apostle. And this experience is certainly grounds for boasting. Um, I just alluded to it, but I don't know about you, I've not had many visions and dreams. In fact, I've had zero that have revealed anything to me in this way. And this experience for Paul could have been the real clincher. This could have settled it for Paul. This this could have sealed his argument. And we expect Paul to elaborate on his vision and to elaborate on what he saw. However, just when we expect him to boast in visions And revelations from God, he pivots hard, he he pivots very hard and creates a paradox. He mentioned these visions as one of many arguments in his defense. But instead of boasting in these incredible, unparalleled, supernatural experiences, as he certainly could have done, he chose instead... To boast in something that is so surprising to us, it's almost jarring. It doesn't make any sense. He chose to boast in his infirmities, his physical ailments. 
his weakness. And we're like, what? Why? Why would you boast in that? And how could you possibly boast in your infirmities? He had so much to go on. Why is he taking this tactic? He tells of a thorn in the flesh that was given to him. He he references an infirmity that he suffered from greatly. And, And the Corinthian church very likely would have known what he was referring to. We do not. Uh, Many have speculated this could have been inner psychological or emotional struggles such as grief or temptation or even PTSD. I mean, this man was nearly stoned to death. Um, He was responsible for murdering many Christians, uh, personally responsible for the death of Christians before he was converted on the road to Damascus. His thorn could have been Paul's opponents who continued to cause him problems as seen in Corinth. It could have been some kind of demonic harassment, which is not implausible when you think about the Apostle Paul. The man was writing scripture, and certainly Satan would have been opposed to this. It could have been some kind of physical ailments, such as poor eyesight, malaria, or or severe migraine headaches, or or something like that. And there are are reasons for, for believing any one of these could have been the case. However, this was most likely some kind of physical ailment because Paul explicitly said a thorn in the flesh. This is something that was afflicting. It was an infirmity that was afflicting his flesh. Either way, whatever this was, the Corinthian church knew, Paul knew, we don't. Whatever it was, I'm glad we don't really know. Because, because we do not know, Every single one of us can take our own personal suffering, our own pain, our own hurt, our own hardship, whatever it may be, to this passage and apply to our own lives the hope-filled promise that Paul is about to reveal to us. The very openness of, of this thorn in the flesh allows wide possibilities of personal application to a broad range of personal suffering. Had this thorn been explicitly identified, we might have limited God's promise, but it is not. And this is very open. We can take whatever afflicts us personally, our burdens, our struggles, to this passage and see ourselves in it. So the word translated thorn is used only here in the New Testament and literally means stake. This is intended to be very graphic, like like a railroad spike buried deep in my flesh. This affliction that I'm experiencing hurts. This is painful. It's debilitating. It's a stake in my flesh. It's buried deep in me, and it's debilitating. We all know intuitively what these afflictions look like, even if we're not experiencing them personally right now. It looks like physical health problems, chronic disease, the loss of a loved one, anxiety, depression, a car accident, a lost job, relational conflict and difficulty, a rebellious child, a difficult boss. You get the idea. We all know what it is to be afflicted. Do we not? Affliction. That's what Paul's describing. This was Paul's thorn. And Paul said explicitly that this thorn was the working of Satan. Satan was literally behind 
his affliction. Satan was working to afflict this man of God. Here Paul was just trying to be a Christian, trying to do the work of the gospel and of the kingdom. He's just doing the right thing, and Satan was working against him. Why? Well, because he's trying to stymie the work of God. Like, he's a Christian. He's doing Christian things, and Satan's opposed to this. Like Job, who was simply living his life and trying to serve and be faithful to God, Paul was being afflicted by Satan for the same reason Satan worked against Job. It was to work against God. Job was bringing God glory, and Satan didn't like it. Paul was building God's kingdom, and Satan didn't like it. Satan was working against him. And it's not, it's not biblically inaccurate to say, Satan's afflicting me. Satan is working against me. That may not always be the case. We bring a lot of affliction on ourselves, but it certainly could be. If we're in a good place doing the work of God, Paul said, Satan's afflicting me. However, in the case of Paul and in the case of Job, God used it for good. Aren't you so thankful for a sovereign God who takes the evil working of Satan and turns it into something beautiful. And that is the accomplishment of His purposes. I'm so thankful for that because it gives us hope. And it's what this promise is built on. God used it for good. And it was to keep Paul from boasting. To keep Paul from being conceited. So, so debilitating and publicly obvious was Paul's thorn that he could not even boast in the fact that he was an apostle who had received special revelation from God. I mean, think about that. It was painful and deeply humbling. Paul said in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Paul's affliction was from Satan, but God in His sovereignty, used Paul's affliction for his own purposes, and Paul could no longer glory in himself. That was God's purpose here. And so, Paul has this thorn, he has this affliction, and he begged God, he begged God to remove his pain. Paul didn't always appreciate his own suffering. He begged, he pleaded, he says three times, I begged God uh, on many occasions to remove this thorn, but God refused. Okay, how disheartening, how discouraging, how, how potentially faith-shattering. How many times have Christian people knelt down and begged God for deliverance? They've said, God, please, please take the pain away. Spare His life. Clear my mind. Heal my body. Mend my relationships. And this was the prayer of Jesus. Father, please, please let this cup pass from me. He's in the garden weeping. Please spare me from this. And how many times have we prayed prayers like this only to have God say, no, no, that's not my purpose. That's not my plan. And it can rock our world. People do, people do leave the faith because of those kinds of no's. Uh, it's, it's, it can, it's faith shaking, if not faith shattering. So, God said no. However, He didn't stop just at the no. 
God gave Paul one of the most wonderful, comforting promises in the scriptures. And I told Ashley, I said, I hope I don't lose it tonight. I'm thinking about people in this room who have lived this, and it's real for them. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God said to Paul, stop asking me to take the pain away. Stop asking me to remove the hardship. Stop asking me to eliminate the difficulty. Why? Because the strength of God is manifested in human weakness. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Job was stripped of all glory and dignity, and because of his, his faithfulness through it all, God was glorified in the spiritual realm of angels and demons. That's mind-blowing to me. We can't even comprehend that. Job's physical suffering led to the metaphysical glorification of God. Like in heaven, God was glorified before angels because Job suffered, and Job didn't even know it. He never even knew that that had happened in heaven, when Israel was hopelessly trapped against the Red Sea, God split the ocean. In their moment of need and weakness, when they looked desperate, God demonstrated his strength. When Israel needed deliverance, God used the coward Gideon. When there was a giant to kill, God sent a David. In 1 Corinthians 1.27 states it explicitly, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. In our ultimate example of this, Christ suffered the most horrific and painful death. And Jesus prayed, Father, please spare me from this. Please don't let me go through this. But God let him. He endured it, and Jesus was spectacularly glorified when God raised him up. God's glory was most spectacularly displayed when the defeat was the ugliest. When hope looked so far away, that is when God made himself known. It's, it's, it's when hope became near, when that happened through God or through that weakness. God's magnificence and strength were most profoundly displayed. God said, Paul, you want deliverance, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to deliver you from it. I'm going to get you through it. My grace, my sustaining, enabling, helping, empowering, comforting goodness is going to be enough for you. I'm doing something spectacular through your weakness. God's grace is his love and unmerited favor given to us. That's what we often think of. But it's also his power. It's his power to work in us and through us. It is the power of God that enabled Paul and enables you and me to get through the hardship that God is using for his glory. What a promise that is. Not only will he help me get through it, but he'll use it for good. Here's the thing about grace. It's, it's not needed if we're not weak. 
God can't manifest his power if we're powerful enough. God displays his strength by enabling us in our weakness. So, so debilitating was Paul's infirmity that he could not boast in himself. Paul could not possibly boast in his own abilities. He could not possibly boast in his own accomplishments. He could not possibly boast in the visions and revelations he received. This was the Paul. This was the Apostle Paul who traveled all over the known world on three separate missionary journeys, preaching and teaching and planting churches as he went. He was afflicted he was inflicted by a physical infirmity so great and so obvious. Everyone saw it. Everyone would have looked at Paul and said, yeah, he didn't do that. That's how, that's how severe this was. And through it, God's glory was being displayed. In Paul's life, God received the glory because Paul obviously could not be the source of these great things. He was too weak. And it was, it was apparent what would this weakness prompt Paul to do? Well, run to God in reliance on his enabling. Difficulties have a way of either revealing our faith or revealing the lack of it. When our faith persists in the midst of pain and hardship, when we continue in the work of God's kingdom in the midst of affliction, it's a testimony to an evidence of our very good God because persisting in faith through pain and hardship and continuing God's kingdom work in the midst of difficulties, that's not natural. <laughs> like, if it was natural, we would all give it up, okay? But, but, but that's not what happens. And we could all think of examples in this very room of people who have smiled through terrifying battles with cancer, obviously upheld by the grace of God. And their smile, their joy is unnatural. We know it's the power of God, the hope of Jesus Christ working through them. We could all think of examples of those who have, who have lost children to disease and tragedy. A pain as a father of small children, I can't possibly imagine. I can't imagine that that thorn, if you want to call it that. And yet they've continued to persevere in their faith, and they've continued to serve in Christ's church. They've continued to demonstrate the grace of God in their lives, and in so doing, they've held Christ on a pedestal. Like, they've glorified Christ through that hardship. We can all think of examples of those who have lost jobs, lost the means by which they provide for their family, and yet have continued to demonstrate faith in God's ability to provide. Uh, they've, they've claimed as their own, Psalm 37, 25, I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. And through these people, through their suffering, we literally see the power and effect of the gospel in their lives. Like in the midst of the most horrific and terrible human experiences, we see God through people. This is, this is truly paradigm shifting. If God is glorified through my suffering, 
If God is glorified through my hardship, if God looks big when I am small, if God looks strong when I am weak and I'm on God's team, I can actually boast. I can find hope in. I can find glory in those things that bring me so much pain. Paul could actually be happy and find purpose in his weakness, in his pain, in his suffering. Paul's whole life was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so if, if Christ looked big because he accomplished something amazing through Paul's weakness, that was a win. That was a win for Paul. If we come through our difficulties with a greater, deeper faith, if we come through our difficulties obviously full of grace, the enabling power of God, we can rejoice because Christ has literally been glorified through our hardship. It's not in vain. The hardship is not in vain. And if Christ is glorified, that's a win because we're on his team. A point for Team Jesus is a point for me, because I'm on Jesus' team. And we can rejoice in eternity knowing that Christ was glorified through our lives. This does not mean for a moment that our difficulties are trivial. This does not mean that the stake driven and buried deep in our flesh does not hurt, because it does. It hurts desperately. It's painful. But what it does mean is that we have hope. We have an incredible hope. What it does mean is that His strength is best manifested through our weakness. It means that because I'm one with Christ, Paul said it, when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. The fact that God's power is displayed in our weakness should give us courage, to face anything in a deep, deep hope. So Paul went on in verse 10 to actually broaden this application. As the preacher, I don't have to do it. Paul did it for me in verse 10. He said, for the sake of Christ, then, Paul chose to be content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamity, because these things that at first appeared to be detrimental were in fact manifestations of the strength that was his through Christ. Paul made a choice. He made an active choice to be content in the midst of those things that were painful, hard, and difficult because his perseverance and faith through those things revealed the power of God on display in his life. So Paul broadened this way out. It became much bigger than his thorn. Paul chose to be content not just with his weakness, but with reproaches, or we might say insults or injury. So we could say it this way. When we face personal offense and choose to get over it, choose to turn the other cheek, we manifest the power of Christ in our lives. We prove that our faith in God's word and God's ways are greater than my very natural desire to get back. That's what we're demonstrating. He was content with necessities or we might say hardship. When we choose to smile in the midst of physical affliction, 
in the midst of health difficulties, we manifest the joy of the gospel. We demonstrate the joy that comes from the fact that all could be taken from me, even my very life, everything, but my soul forever belongs to Jesus Christ. And there's a joy that comes from that. And we manifest that joy when we choose to have joy through the hardship. He was content with persecution. When we persist in faith, even through the world laughing at us, we demonstrate that what we believe is real. Because if it wasn't, nobody would endure that ridicule. Nobody. Why would you? But it is real. And we demonstrate that through our our persevering. He was content in the midst of personal distress to experience loss and personal distress through the death of a loved one and yet remain faithful to the work of Christ is to demonstrate that He's enough. He's enough. Yes, this hurts, but He's what allows me to get through it. We can rejoice and be content in the midst of the most profoundly awful things in life because of this wonderful, hope-filled promise. My grace, my power is manifested through your weakness. The glory of God is manifested through our weakness. So we have a choice, and I hope we'll all choose to view every hardship, every difficulty, every suffering, every affliction through that paradigm. My grace is manifested in His weakness. This is an opportunity for me to manifest His goodness. And I have hope because of that. In eternity, this is a win because of His grace and His goodness. So I hope that's as much of an encouragement to you this evening as it's been to me this week. Would you stand with me?